And so the, the dawn of the internet promised a mind-expanding utopia. Do you guys remember that? Like the day before where there wasn't an internet and then there was, and you kind of heard about this and people were talking about like, what is the internet? And it promised virtually endless amounts of data and information. And the talk was that with this digital landscape, we would now be, we'd be free to exchange and contemplate new ideas. It'd be this landscape where we could consider other points of view in order to form a more comprehensive worldview. Did you know that today, the print edition of the Boston Globe contains more information in it than the average person in the 17th century would have come across in their entire lifetime? Then take into consideration that there are currently 4.5 billion web pages, and that number is growing every minute. The amount of information that we have at our fingertips right now is more than we could possibly consume in multiple lifetimes, isn't it? And yet, with all the access to new information, we have not escaped the comfort of our own preferences. You see, the human condition is such that we prefer information that already aligns with what we believe. In fact, With the constant barrage of data, we intuitively filter out feeds and streams of information that don't align with what we prefer. And this confirmation bias leads companies like Google and Facebook to create these complex algorithms so that as you click around on the internet, it actually learns your preferences and makes sure your afternoon surf on the web is pleasant and comfortable. Now, don't go blaming Google and Facebook for this. They're actually just giving us what we want. It's not to blame. We want this to happen seamless and effortlessly in the background as we search. See, we naturally create these echo chambers so that we can hold on to our deeply established beliefs. We control what we see so that we can validate our presuppositions, so that we can justify our practices, so that we can reinforce our priorities. Unless you think this is just a modern problem, this has been going on since the beginning of time. See, while an echo chamber of our own design may be comfortable, the problem is that in that chamber, we'll never question the status quo. And this morning, as we start in Mark 11.1, it's going to mark the final act in Mark's drama. You see, what we're going to get over these next five chapters is the final week, the last seven days of Jesus's life. It's the most important week of the most important person who's ever lived. And Jesus is going to spend these first few days of his week confronting and challenging the status quo. He's going to confront and challenge the echo chamber of Israel's religion. See, if nothing in our life can confront or challenge our presuppositions and assumptions, then ultimately we risk creating a God of our own design. So this morning as we jump into the text, Jesus is not only going to confront Israel's echo chamber. If we have ears to hear this morning, he's going to challenge our own presuppositions our own practices, and our own priorities. So let's first look at our presuppositions. Look with me at Mark 11, verse 1. Now, as you're turning there in your Bible, I want to set the stage for you so you understand what's going on. It's springtime right now. 
And thousands of Jews are making their yearly Passover pilgrimage to the Holy Land as required by law as they celebrate what God has done in their past to deliver them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And there's an excitement in the air with the hustle and bustle as people are coming in to the city. People are reconnecting with old friends and family members. And stories about the miracles of Jesus have gone viral. And people are wondering, could he be the long-awaited Messiah? Now, the religious elite, they're threatened by him. There's these murmurs of, of assassination happening in the back alleys. And all the nationalists are getting ready. They, they're, they're bearing arms. They're ready for the, for the hint and the sight of revolution. Meanwhile, the Roman occupation is just doing everything they can to keep the peace no matter what. It's like they have one job only from Caesar, and it's keep the peace. No riots, no rallies. And all of this creates a powder keg ready for a spark. This is the climate. This is what's going on as, Jesus, as, the, as the sun rises on Sunday morning and the first day of the last week in Jesus' life. Look at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage at Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And as they went away, they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. Now, if you've been tracking with us at the beginning, or if you've ever read Mark's gospel, you'll know this is the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus has gone to Jerusalem. Now, we know from the other gospel accounts that Jesus has gone to Jerusalem lots of times in his life. He went there as a little boy. He goes there every, three times a year for the holy pilgrimages. But Mark doesn't include those stories. You see, Mark, from a literary perspective, is trying to make a point. You see, for Mark, getting to Jerusalem has been the point. Getting to Jerusalem is the climax of his drama. Everything's been pointing to this week. And so before they enter in, Jesus sends two of his disciples to go and commandeer this young donkey that's tied to a post in a nearby village. Now, by now, we're not even phased anymore by Jesus's unusual ability to see what's going to happen just ahead. The precision of his detail here is remarkable, right? He says, go into that village, and when you enter, you'll see a donkey tied up. In fact, no one's ever even sat on it before. And when someone asks you about it, because they will, here's what you say. And of course, everything happened just as Jesus told them. It's like Jesus said, there's guys standing there and they think they're suspicious, right? There's these guys just rolling into town, untying this donkey, and they're going, hey, we know that's not your donkey. You just rolled up in here. You can't take that. And they tell them, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here when you're done. See, this isn't, the disciples aren't Jedis. They don't pull some Jedi mind trick here. This isn't, you know, these aren't the droids you're looking for. This is the Son of God, in full control of his destiny. 
He is not going into Jerusalem as some helpless victim caught up in the tide of the times. Jesus is deliberate. He's determined. He is headed to Jerusalem to love us to death. That's his mission. And every single detail of it is planned. Now look at me at verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their colts on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, what's interesting here, for a guy like Jesus, who literally walked everywhere he went, riding in on a donkey was out of the norm. This is the only time in any of the Gospels that we see Jesus riding an animal. And so we're supposed to pay attention and go, why now? Why have you waited your whole life to ride an animal? Why would he ride this donkey into Jerusalem? And in order to fully appreciate the significance, we have to remember this prophecy from long ago, back in Zechariah chapter 9. Look with me at verse 9. I'm going to read these words out loud. The prophet writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Listen, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem riding on a young donkey. In fact, he's actually copying something that kings had done long ago. When Solomon, the son of David, rode into Jerusalem, when he was declared king, he rode in on a donkey as well. Now Jesus, the son of David, is riding into town as their rightful king. And in doing so, Jesus crosses the point of no return. See, there's no going back now. He could have slipped into Jerusalem like he had done Time and time again, he could have slipped in incognito with the thousands of other Jews coming to celebrate the Passover, but he doesn't. His riding in on a donkey is making a statement. Jesus is saying, I am your long-awaited Messiah King. This is not a neutral event. For Rome, this could have been interpreted as treason. For them, there is but one Lord, and his name is is Caesar. For the religious leaders, this is offensive because he doesn't fit their mold. He doesn't fit their presuppositions as who the Messiah is going to be. To them, he's an imposter. And as he makes his way into the city, the Bible says crowds start to gather and they lay down the Jewish red carpet. They spread their cloaks on the ground. They get palm branches from the fields. Joy takes the form of song as they start to sing Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the coming of our king. They're energized and excited and expectant. They have longed for this day their whole life. Though they didn't know when Messiah was going to come, the one thing they knew that when he did come, he would come riding on a donkey. And this scene triggers for them all of their presuppositions and expectations of the Messiah. They're ready to call him king. But soon, as we're going to find out as the story unfolds, he's not the king of their expectations. He doesn't fit their mold. He doesn't fit their presuppositions. 
See, a presupposition is a belief that controls all your other beliefs. It's the belief underneath the beliefs. See, they had a Messiah in their mind according to their desires. And they're crying out, Hosanna, which is just Hebrew, and it means save us. But save us from who? The Romans? Save us from who? The religious elite? Save us from who? The sinners? Just saying save us has a presupposition attached to it, right? Save us from who? See, they're shouting and saying the right things, but there's no indication from what follows that they really grasped the significance of what they were actually saying. See, the crowd is caught up in the moment. This kind of crowd is still fresh in our minds, right? We aren't too far removed from a year ago when in our political climate, we were kind of stirred up in a frenzy, right, in the 2016 election. Think of the fervor and the clamor of a political rally. That's what this scene is here. Imagine on one side of the street, you've got people wearing hats and t-shirts that say, make Israel great again. And on the other side of the street, there are those with their banners and their shirts that say, I'm with him. Progress for the rest of us. Right? Because of their presuppositions, they're cheering Jesus on because they think he fits their idea of a savior. But as we've seen all throughout Mark with the crowds, proximity and excitement about Jesus does not equal intimacy and relationship with Jesus. And as we'll soon find out in the next five days, none of them are there as he's being crucified. On the day he's actually doing the work to save them, no one here today will be with him. Imagine Jesus on the young buck-toothed donkey, on this makeshift saddle with people's t-shirts. You've got sleeves and, 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 and coats hanging down. He didn't come in like Caesar on a war chariot, pulled by a dozen stallions, adorned with wreaths of gold and a platinum chest plate and a freshly sharpened spear. He doesn't enter in power. He enters in humility. I love the way Tim Keller says it. In Jesus, we find infinite majesty, yet complete humility. Perfect justice, yet boundless grace. Absolute sovereignty, yet utter, utter submission. All sufficiency in himself, yet entire trust and dependence on God. See, these crowds, they're right to identify him as the Messiah, but their presuppositions are informed by their own desires. Their echo chamber of what's comfortable has kept them from seeing Jesus as who he really is. To see that Jesus' victory comes not through power, but through suffering and humiliation. They weren't ready to see that he is the king of all because he was the servant of all. Jesus is first because he made himself the last. He's the high and exalted one because he went low and was humiliated. He's not the king they expected, but he was the king they needed. He entered Jerusalem not to put a crown on his head, but to put a cross on his back. He entered Jerusalem not to conquer an empire, but to be conquered by the empire so that he could overthrow death itself and set captives free. Jesus is not the king we expected, 
but he is the king that we need. And they missed it. Have we missed Jesus because of our own presuppositions? Does he not fit inside of our echo chambers? Have we ever let who he reveals himself to be in scripture ever challenge and confront our expectations? And I want you to keep those questions in mind as we keep moving in this passage because not only does Jesus challenge our presuppositions, but he's also gonna confront our practices. Look with me at verse 11. And as he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So after this triumphal entry, the day grows late, but before leaving, he visits the temple to do a kind of a reconnaissance project, to look around, to get a lay of the land. It was a fact-finding mission. And once he's seen what he needs to see, he and the disciples head back to Bethany, about two miles east of Jerusalem. And Bethany will be their headquarters throughout the week. You'll see this rhythm He'll, he'll go into Jerusalem and then he'll come back to Bethany. He'll go into Jerusalem and go back into Bethany. And you might be thinking, that was kind of anticlimactic. I mean, all of the, the crowds, the cheering, this entry, I'm your king. And he goes back to Bethany. And it all amounts to nothing. The next time we'll see this crowd in a frenzy, they'll be asking for his death. Look at verse 12. On the following day, when they had come from Bethany, he, meaning Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, some of you cannot believe that Jesus would curse this fig tree. You think, it's not even the tree's fault, right? Didn't Mark say it wasn't even the season for figs? Where are my tree huggers? You're just like, what is going on? Now, there's some of you who totally get it. It's Monday. He's hangry. He's tired. He's got a really stressful week ahead of him. But no matter how you approach it, the next 14 verses are difficult. In fact, as I was reading and studying for this passage, these 14 verses have tripped up so many people. Philosophers in the modern age have looked at this passage and said, this is why I reject Jesus. He couldn't be God. Look at that divine temper tantrum. As we look at this, this is the only destructive use of Jesus's power in all of the gospels. Some have seen some serious and major character flaws here. And they've equated this as a divine temper tantrum. Some have wondered, well, why did he lose his temper? Why not use your power to restore restore the tree? We've seen you do some amazing things. Surely, this is just like a flick of the wrist for you, Jesus. Cause fruit to grow and then satisfy your hunger. It's typical in Mark's gospel to see Jesus bring life and restoration to withered things, not destruction and decay. We've not experienced Jesus so far in the Gospels as an impatient, aggressive person prone to temper tantrums. And so I want us to suspend disbelief for a moment. See, part of what's going on here is that we're not horticulturists here. None of us are up to speed on how fig trees work. So let me tell you how it works. Figs are harvested from mid-August 
to mid-October. And then after the harvest, before the winter, the fig tree will sprout these little buds that remain undeveloped throughout the winter. It's going to become a fig. By spring, these little buds, as life starts to flow through the tree again, these little buds swell into these little edible snacks. The Jews called them pagim. Now, they're not fully ripened figs, but they were edible. In fact, some locals love them. Then later in spring, the fig tree would sprout leaves. Okay? So if you're tracking with me, the edible buds come before the leaves. So when Jesus sees from a distance this tree having leaves, he should expect what? Those little edible pagim. Jesus is headed over for a snack. Little fruit snacks. I love fruit snacks. Full foliage meant there should have been something to eat. Again, it wasn't the season for ripened figs, but it was the season for edible pagim. This tree has all the signs of fruit, but as he gets closer, it's just a big, empty show. All leave, no fruit. From a distance, it should have signs of life and fruit, but up close, there's nothing. It's a classic case of false advertisement. This tree has overpromised and underdelivered. It's barren, it's fruitless, and ultimately lifeless. In fact, not producing fruit is a sign that likely this tree has a disease and is rotting from the inside. Now, if Jesus had merely been hangry, we do have a problem because that's a serious character flaw. But what if Jesus, seeing this dying tree, sees an opportunity to make a vivid, in-your-face kind of parable for the disciples? Remember it says, he said it, he said the curse loud enough so the disciples would hear it. And here, Mark begins one of his favorite literary devices. Remember, we've talked about them? They're called sandwiches, Markin sandwiches. He begins one story, interrupts it with another, and then he finishes the story. It's bread, it's meat, and it's bread again. And just like a sandwich is identified and interpreted by the filling, the middle portion helps us understand what's going on. So let's suspend disbelief that Jesus has thrown a temper tantrum here, and let's look at the middle part of the sandwich. Now, one hint I'll give you as we go is that frequently in the Old Testament, Israel is referred symbolically to a fig tree. If you read through the prophets, there's many times where metaphorically, literarily, the prophets will uh, refer to Israel as a fig tree. Okay, That's one indication that Jesus is doing something bigger here. Now look with me at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them saying, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you, you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So instead of getting better, this scene just gets intense, right? Jesus walks into the temple and starts wrecking shop. Remember, he was here yesterday. This is not some spontaneous outburst. 
He was there yesterday. He surveyed the land, and today he is coming in determined. Now, because most of us haven't been to Jerusalem and haven't seen the Temple Mount, let me explain it to you. The temple complex is massive, okay? Don't think some small little uh, building where you walk in and, and give your sacrifice and walk out. This temple complex is a massive rectangle. It's the size of 35 football fields. It's huge. And right when you arrive at the temple complex, the first thing that you walk into is the court of the Gentiles. It's massive. It's actually the biggest part of the whole temple complex. What's cool about this part is anybody is welcome here. See, this was supposed to be the place where any non-Jews, the Gentiles, could come and find God through prayer and reflection. Another thing you need to know about temple sacrifice is that this commerce was actually built in by God. You see, depending on where you're traveling from, it'd be hard to bring the livestock with you. Or perhaps maybe you weren't even, um, uh, maybe you, you didn't have animals. And so when you would come to the temple and you would bring your required sacrifice, there was a place where you could buy the thing that you needed in order to make the right sacrifice. In fact, God set this whole thing up. He didn't want the sacrificial system to be any more burdensome than it already was. And depending on where you were coming from, you needed to exchange your currency for the local currency, right? That's why there's money changers around. That's why they're selling animals. And with your sacrifice, you would take this newly exchanged money and you'd pay the temple tax, which was, again, set up by God in order to fund the operation, to provide for the priests whose full-time job was to um, make sacrifice, the fact that they're buying and selling, the fact that they're exchanging currency is not sinful. However, Jesus had seen something the night before, and now he comes back at prime time to make his point. You see, the court of the Gentiles was designed by God to be a place where Gentiles, non-Jews, like today we would call them unbelievers or non-believers, it's where they could come and experience God. It's where they could come and be near. It's where they could have a quiet place to come and pray. It's a place where they could belong before they believed. It was designed for outsiders and doubters, foreigners who were curious about who God was. It's a place where they could come. And while the law had made provision to buy and sell animals for sacrifice, it didn't suggest that it should be in this court. Put it anywhere else, but don't put it inside the temple complex. This place is supposed to be a place of prayer and somber reflection, and yet they had turned it into a marketplace. And to give you a scope of how much trade was going on in this place, Jewish historian Josephus said that in AD 60, there were over 255,000 lambs bought and sold and sacrificed in the temple. That's a lot of lambs. Imagine the sounds and the scene as Jesus walks in. I've tried to think, how can I help us understand? It'd be like walking onto Wall Street into the New York Stock Exchange with all of the clamor and all of the noise and all of the movement and then add animals. <laughs> now imagine you're in that place and you're trying to find a quiet corner to reflect and pray. It's impossible. 
On top of that, history tells us that the temple market had become corrupt. See, those in power stood to make a hefty profit there. Greed and power always leads to corruption. So not only is it noisy and stressful, it's become exploitative and corrupt. And so Jesus starts driving out those buying and selling. He flips over the tables where they're exchanging the money. Imagine currency and animals are going everywhere. It says that they couldn't go about their regular business. This demonstration made a point, didn't it? And it stuck in the minds of the religious leaders. In fact, in a few days at his trial, they're going to bring that up again. Hey, you were there. You were turning up the tables. You were, you were bringing disorder. You were uh, uh, destroying the temple. You see, from the outside, looking in, the temple had all the signs of religious spiritual life. There's sacrifices going on, people coming to make this pilgrimage. But Jesus on the inside, after further inspection, the truth becomes plain to see that the religious practices are disingenuous. The heart of Israel was Jerusalem. And the heart of Jerusalem was the temple. And Jesus had come into the very center part of Israel, and he found noise and clamor, exploitation and corruption, fruitless, lifeless practices. On the outside, it had all the markings of religiosity, but on the inside, the light to the nations had been extinguished. These religious practices were empty and barren, lifeless and fruitless, the one place that was supposed to be a drawing and welcoming place had become crowded. It was often thought that when Messiah would come, he would drive out the sinners from the temple, which was never God's intention at all. It's actually a place for sinners. And don't you see what Jesus is doing? He's not clearing the temple of the Gentiles. He's actually clearing it for the Gentiles. And because we have the hindsight of history, we know in just a few short decades, this temple would come crashing to the ground. In AD 70, just some 40 years later, the temple would be destroyed by Rome, withered down to its roots. Here, Jesus confronts their religious practices. So I gotta ask, Seven Mile Road, do we have religious practices that on the outside, someone looking in, look religious, they look Christian, but on the inside at the heart are hollow and empty? Are we simply going through the motions? Have we made this thing a click that keeps away the outsiders and the seekers? Has the heart of our faith grown dead so that all that remains is empty, lifeless religiosity? Has prayer become dull? Is Bible reading something we do just to check off a list? Is there actually life and devotion behind our religious behaviors? This one challenged me this week as I was preparing for it. I had to ask myself, do I pray just to keep my job as a pastor? Or do I pray because I get to commune with God? Am I only going to the Bible because I get paid to? Or am I coming to the scriptures because in them I find life? What about you? Are you willing to ask hard questions? What practices in your life are at risk of becoming heartless, lifeless, and empty? 
So not only does Jesus confront our presuppositions and our practices, but look with me at verse 20 to see how he confronts our priorities. As they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered away down to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father, who's also in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Okay, if you're tracking in the week, it's now Tuesday morning as they make their way back to Jerusalem and they come back by this fig tree. It's withered to the ground the next day. Hopefully now the fig tree is starting to make some sense. The fig tree wasn't doing its job. It wasn't bearing its fruit. It was rotting from the inside out. And Jesus used it as a perfect metaphor for Israel. He had cleared the temple of fruitless activity and practices and he had done the same with the fig tree. And this leafy tree with all of its promise of fruit was just an empty show. It was as deceptive as the temple, which despite all of the activity was all leaf and no fruit. Now, Peter points out and says, hey, Jesus, that fig tree you cursed, it's been withered. And then Jesus begins to teach on faith, prayer, and forgiveness. When I first came across this passage, it seemed out of place. Like when my kids are cleaning and they pick up a toy and they don't know where it goes and they just kind of shove it under the bed. The fig tree lacked fruit and life. The temple was barren of love and faithfulness. What Jesus is saying here is make sure you are not a leafy fig tree, all leaf and no fruit. Don't put on a show looking like you bear fruit when in reality there's nothing really there. Don't be like the temple with all of its glamour and trappings of religious practice, but with all the wrong motives and all the false practices. And so Jesus starts to teach him, don't, it's like, don't be like this, but be like this. He teaches on prayer and faith and forgiveness because Jesus knows that underneath every outward practice is a set of priorities on the inside. See, all of our behaviors, when you see something coming out of you, they're attached to your desires and your values and your priorities. So he starts to get at the heart and says, have faith in God. Now, we often use this phrase just to mean like general positivity towards God. Faith in God is not the same as liking his Facebook page. Faith in God is ultimate dependence. This means he is number one on your priority list. Faith in God means this, Jesus plus nothing else. Nothing else takes that place of ultimate devotion. That doesn't mean there's not stuff underneath it, but we're talking about the top seed, the number one slot. You can't put your hope and your trust in Jesus and in something else. You don't treat Jesus like your stock portfolio. I've been told a good stock portfolio is one that's diversified and spread out so that all your eggs aren't in one basket. But faith in God doesn't work like that. He is not the superstar among your pantheon of other gods. It's Christ alone. It's God alone. It's Jesus plus nothing else. 
Like we looked at last week, having faith in God means that Jesus is your treasure. You would sell all you had to get the field to add Jesus in it. He's your heart. He's your center. He's your top priority. That's what he means by have faith in God. And then Jesus says, with that faith, stay connected to God through prayer. Remember, prayer was the very thing that was lacking in the temple. It was supposed to be a house of prayer, but it had become a corrupt marketplace. See, misplaced priorities. Prayer is simply conversation and communion with God. And that means actual times of devoted prayer, but prayer is also this attitude throughout the day of this continual dependence and connection to God, that he's with you throughout the day, and you're talking to him and depending upon him. As you come to moments that you don't understand that are difficult, you're saying these short little prayers, Lord, help me here. Help me not miss this here. Help me not lose my patience. Now, I do have to address a common misconception here because some people have taken these verses and blown them wildly out of proportion. They'll say, look, you can ask God for whatever you want. And if you just had faith, then I'll have to give it to you. Doing this treats God like a vending machine. It seems like on the surface that maybe Jesus is giving us a blank check here. But this is why it's important to remember there's verses that come after this. There's verses that come before this. Like This isn't the only time Jesus teaches about prayer. Jesus isn't giving us a blank check here. Think about it like this. A good father does not give his children whatever they ask for. He couldn't. You know why? Sometimes they ask for things that will kill them. And you have to say, no, you cannot run with those knives, right? A good father knows not only would it be unwise, but kids don't know how to ask for the right things. That's what we're doing as parents. We're trying to teach them to know what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful so that they can ask for those things. And then what father doesn't want to give them all of those things? Again, I like the way Tim Keller says it in his book on prayer. God will either give us what we ask or he'll give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. See, he answers our prayers in line with his good and perfect will. That's why he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. God is not some genie in the sky who grants prayers regardless of how they will affect us. He is a loving and perfect father who answers our prayers in our best interest even when we don't understand it, even when we don't know what we should be asking for. Now, I've put these constraints on it. I also want to free you. This passage does invite us to pray bold and unbelievable prayers as his children. So pray. Don't be afraid to ask for the wrong things. You know why? God will protect you from that. He will not give you the things that will harm you. So let's come as his children, knowing that we have a good and faithful father in heaven, and pray. And then last thing, we're closing up. Jesus says, forgive. Now, why does he talk about forgiveness here? Do you want to know if someone has really understood the gospel? Ask him how well they forgive other people. See, there is no one, and I mean absolutely no one, if you understand God's forgiveness, that you can't forgive. 
When you realize what Jesus has done for you and the grace that's been extended to you, you know you're forgiven for nothing else except for the love and the mercy of God. And he's been unbelievable, generous, and gracious to you. It's like when a person gets a heart transplant. They know there were other people on that list who didn't get one. They know, you talk to them, that they have to live each day in humble gratitude, right? That's what it's like to be forgiven by God. And when you know that, it frees you to give that kind of forgiveness to others. That's the kind of fruit. That's life. Or another way to put it is, that's figs on your branches. That's a life connected to Jesus. So are you all leaves and no fruit? If Jesus were walking up to you today to inspect your branches, what would he find? Would he find faith in God? Would he find prayer a part of your life as your sense of connectedness? Would he find forgiveness at the ready? Or would he find empty religiosity and hardness of heart? Would he find barren practices in the clamor of the marketplace? Now, fortunately for us, this passage is given today as a warning. There's still time to receive the restoration that Jesus offers. The curse of the fig tree is a picture of judgment to come. Because there is going to come a day when all who are without fruit will wither. And so if you're hearing his words today, do not harden your heart. Beware of a God of your own design who never challenges you, who never contradicts you, who never confronts you. See, Jesus, he was withered down to his roots so that you could be restored to fruitfulness. He actually took the curse of the fig tree on himself so that we could experience the fruit of life. He came humbly riding in on a donkey to challenge our presuppositions. He wasn't the king we expected, but he is the king we need. And the great irony of our life is that the reason he's not the king we expected, it's because we actually want to be king. The, heart, the bottom line of every human heart is that we want to be at the top. We want to be in his place. We want to be the ones calling the shots. We want to do life our own way. We don't want our practices challenged. We don't want our priorities brought out of line. But the gospel is this. It's the good news that though he wasn't the king we expected, he is the king we needed, and he came to take our place. He came and took on our rebellion. He actually drank the poison of our sin. He suffered the wrath and punishment due to us. He bore our guilt. He took on our shame. In fact, he lived out your greatest fear. He died the death that we deserved in our place for our sins. That's what Jesus came to do. He traded places with us. He came down so that he could bring us up. He reached down when we couldn't reach up. And he rode into Jerusalem knowing that doom awaited him so that there might be safety for you and me. See, Jerusalem means the end of him so that there might be a beginning for you. Death for him so there might be eternal life for you. And when you believe that, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that deserves top priority in your life more than God. And when you believe that, there is no practice you're not willing to reform and there's no priority that you're not willing to change around. Let's be a people marked by that kind of abundant fruit. Let's pray.